This episode of The Explainer is sponsored by Daft Advantage Ads. Looking to sell your property for the best price? Daft Advantage Ads will maximise your chances. Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, what are 15-minute cities and why do some people think they're controversial? Now, we all know by now that there are many conspiracy theories online, some of which attract a huge amount of followers. They've tended in recent years to be based on highly emotive issues around health and personal freedoms. Think vaccinations, COVID lockdowns and the like. But a current topic that's causing a stir online is a bit unusual because it's an urban planning concept. The 15-minute city is based on the idea that people living in urban areas should be able to walk or cycle to amenities like work, housing and education within 15 minutes. But this concept has somehow tapped into the fears of groups online and has even been compared to an urban prison system. It's also been the focus of some protests in recent weeks. So to shed some light on all of this today, we're joined by one of our own assistant news editors, Stevie McDermott, who's investigated the topic. And we're also joined by Camilla Sego-Anderson, an architect based in London who specialises in city development. Thanks to both of you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Camilla, first off, what exactly is a 15 minute city? I know it can be hard for people to conceptualise, but how would you describe it? I think you said it quite well there in your introduction, actually, um, that a 15 minute city, it's this idea of a city or a town where everyone that lives there has access to a range of essential amenities within a 15 minute walk or potentially bike ride from their home. And to understand what that means at a personal level, you could take a moment to just think about what's in your own neighborhood where you live. And could you easily walk to a grocery shop selling fresh produce and vegetables, for example? Or is there a park nearby? Um, Or what if you needed to pick something up from the pharmacy? How far would you have to go to get there? So with this concept, the idea is that you'd never have to go further than 15 minutes for anything that you might need on a daily basis or anything that could be considered essential to live a healthy and happy life. It's not to say that, you know, if you preferred the pharmacy on the other side of town, that you wouldn't be able to travel there. Um, But if you didn't have the time to do so, you, you wouldn't have to. So in that way, you might also say that the concept is fundamentally about creating opportunities for people to live more locally while also ensuring that no neighborhood and no community is deprived of critical services. We know, for example, from public health research, that the availability of fresh food, of health and social care, of public transport networks and schools and education is key, together with access to jobs and places to enjoy free time, and particularly places of nature. And we can see how important proximity is too. So when we have a choice, we use the places that we have nearby much more frequently than the places that are further away. What this means is that if you live close to a park, you are likely to spend more time in nature than someone who lives far from a park. And your mental and your physical health is likely to be better for it, while the health of someone who lives further away and therefore visits the park less, their their health is likely to suffer. And when we don't have a choice, like if you have to take a job that's far away or you have to travel to a hospital for a health issue, then proximity matters too, because there's suddenly time and cost involved. So imagine if you couldn't afford to spend two hours every day traveling to work, or you couldn't afford a car to get to the doctors, 
But then at the same time, you know, you can't afford not to um, because we do need to earn a living and we do need to look after our health. So in a 15-minute city, in theory, no one would be faced with this dilemma. Um, And that's why by making sure that everyone is living with easy access to these essential amenities, the 15-minute city can also be a strategy for addressing social deprivation and inequality. Can you tell me where did this concept originate and why do you think it's come into the fray again recently? So in urban planning, the idea of designing around proximity and access has actually been around for, for several decades. Um, the American author Jane Jacobs wrote in support of neighborhood-oriented planning as far back as the 1960s, for example. The specific 15-minute city vision that we've been hearing about in recent years gained traction through the mayor of Paris and Hidalgo's re-election campaign in 2020. So partnering with Professor Carlos Moreno from the University of Sorbonne, Uh, who had researched and described this concept in various academic papers, Hidalgo took the promise to the Parisians that she would deliver a 15-minute city, increasing everyone's access to amenities and making the streets of the city more walkable. Um, And then when she won, it naturally attracted the attention of politicians all over. And then at the same time, because this was 2020, the COVID-19 pandemic started forcing many local authorities to place temporary restrictions on people's movements. And so for months at a time, people who might never before had thought to question the quality of their neighborhood suddenly came to realize exactly how far away the park was or what the local shop had to offer. So while the concept of the 15-minute city was never and will never be about restricting movement, our experiences during the pandemic showed us both how great or how miserable living locally can be. And it made this otherwise pretty simple planning concept uh, resonate with quite a broad spectrum of people. And then that attracted further attention still sort of in addition to to the attention that it already had gotten in Paris and with local governments all over. And Camilla, are there examples of uh, this working around the world? You mentioned Paris there. Is there anywhere else where it has worked or not worked? Yeah. So as I said before, the idea of designing for proximity has been around for a while. Um, The concept has come up in different sort of shapes and and forms or under different names. So we know 15-minute cities from Paris. There's also 20-minute neighbourhoods, there's 10-minute towns and And that terminology has cropped up in places as diverse as Melbourne and Barcelona and Ottawa in Canada, Portland in North North America, and then, of course, in Paris. Um, And I'd say parts of Paris already fulfill this idea of the 15-minute city really well. But even if you think about what it would be like to live in the city centre of places like Cork or Waterford or in a dense coastal town like Bray, you know, you also have quite a lot of those components, which at least on paper is, is required. I think what's interesting in how is how these places differ in what they're lacking. Um, so if you look at a place like Paris, they're very much focused on improving walkability and the provision of green space, while some of the North American cities need to start by looking at the availability of fresh food. Um, and as it happens, most places which, places which were built before the car was invented and which haven't been the subject of urban renewal and they are actually 15-minute cities by by default, uh, or at least they have the structure to become 15-minute cities fairly easily. And those places also tend to be the places that we choose to go on holiday when we take a city break, uh, or where housing costs can be extremely high because they're nice places to be. 
Um, so there's plenty of places that sort of fulfill this this idea. Um, but of course, there's there's plenty of places as well which don't. Well, you mentioned some, you know, Irish locations there. We're in Dublin. It's a very old city. Uh, you can't just turn it into, let's say, a 15 minute city overnight. So when it comes to planning these, what's required from a planning point of view? How feasible are they? It's actually the old cities, which, as, as I mentioned, are, are in a slightly better position um, to become 15 minute cities. The, the biggest challenge there tend to be to um, improve the quality of housing. Um, so that people can live in in the city centres again. Um, the bigger challenge is with the vast suburban areas which have been built um, in the 20th century where uh, you don't really have the density of people or the availability of amenities that you need in order for the environment to be walkable. Because in order to create a 50-minute city, kind of the first thing we obviously need is a great variety of amenities. Um, and we can find out what amenities might be required by mapping what's already there and by talking to communities about what they feel might be missing. And if these maps reveal, for example, that there's an area where people don't have access to fresh food, you should look at how you might add that amenity. But each of these amenities or places, they in turn need visitors and customers um, so other people other than you who are able to reach them by foot as uh, as part of their daily comings and goings. Um, in order for most businesses to survive, they need quite a few visitors every day. Um, whether you're a library, you need a minimum footfall. If you're a school, you need students. If you're a doctor's office, you need patients. And if there's not enough people within walking distance of these amenities, then the destination essentially has two choices. So it can either choose to close up shop or it can try to attract people who are coming from further away, such as by car. And that might be all right, except that now you have more traffic on the roads and you need more areas for parking. And that makes the environment less conducive to walking. And that takes away space that could have been used for homes, parks or other types of amenities. And in addition to being more space efficient, walking is, of course, also free from cost and completely carbon neutral, which makes it the most equitable mode of transportation. And that includes, obviously, uh, assisted walking. Um, so those are sort of the three ingredients is you need a, a density of people to support a density and variety of amenities. And then you need to make sure that people can get to those amenities by foot so that the environment itself can can remain walkable overall, uh, and that the closeness uh, with which you can place these amenities to each other can be achieved. And as Ireland, it's a small island, does it make it particularly suited for 15-minute cities? You touched on it with areas like Waterford and Bray, but what would be the barriers to them in Ireland? So at the moment, none of the Irish cities meet the overall density levels that are required to provide amenities within a 15-minute walk of most people's homes. The government's compact growth agenda clearly signals a change in the direction of adding more homes where people already are instead of on new sites that expand the footprint of the city. But the actual route to implementation isn't just about adjusting these numbers about where people live and where the amenities are, but very much about changing hearts and minds too. So I think what's really interesting about Ireland is that your development of cities has taken an entirely different journey than what we've seen in the rest of Europe and in many other parts of the world that might be comparable economically and culturally. So, you know, when most of Paris or Copenhagen was being built, 
the Irish population was in decline. And then by the 20th century, when those tides had turned, it was about suburbs and not cities. And what I think that means is that we still haven't seen the Irish define for themselves what urban living looks and feels like. Um, and I can understand why some people might feel uncertain about what something like a 15-minute city might be able to offer. But all that being said, there is every opportunity for Ireland to use this concept as a starting point for having those conversations with communities and to develop an urban vision that's perhaps neither driven by American suburban dreams nor dictated by this Parisian 15-minute cities ideas. Um, I think it has to be uniquely Irish to be successful. And you talked about discussing these concepts with communities and bringing the community along with you and the work you do. Do you think there's generally a positive public perception of the 15-minute city? I think generally, yes. Uh, There has been uh, a pretty um, positive perception of 15-minute cities uh, up until maybe this point uh, in time now, which is what has prompted this, this podcast. Selling your property? Ask your estate agent for a daft advantage ad today for maximum visibility, best results and best price for your property. Well, I think it's probably a perfect time to to switch to Stevie and ask him about this because many of our listeners will only be hearing about the 15 minute city recently in relation to the idea of it being uh, a conspiracy. And Stevie, recently there have been a lot of social media posts criticising this concept of a 15 minute city. What are the typical posts and claims that we're finding online? Uh, the typical posts are the ones that are referring to a conspiracy theory anyway. Um, they talk about this 15-minute city idea as like a grand Marxist or socialist plan uh, that's being implemented by authorities to take away people's personal freedoms. So Camilla mentioned there that obviously there's no restriction on people about how far they can travel in, under this idea, but a lot of people are latching on to the 15-minute idea in particular and suggesting that they will only be able to travel for, for 15 minutes and that they will be uh, stuck in a zone with that radius um, and that it will kind of restrict where they can go and uh, what they can do essentially um, under a grand plan to keep people down. Um, I mean, the other side of this is that um, my first way into this conspiracy theory was seeing a lot of posts by people who were sort of sneering about it and saying that, oh, I can't believe people have latched onto this urban planning concept as a conspiracy theory. And I think that is quite telling as well, because um, it just shows how far some people have gone. And I mean, this is I wouldn't call it boring, but it's certainly very um, ordinary. You know, it's not it's not anything that's sinister. It's not anything that's uh, what people are suggesting it is. Um, and it is it can seem quite laughable. But I mean, it's also, like I say, indicative of the way some people's minds have gone in the past couple of years. And Stevie, where did these beliefs stem from then? Where do you think they originated? I know Camilla mentioned that they were sort of conflated about around the COVID lockdowns. Is that the conspiracy beliefs that have kind of led to this point? So... When you think back to the start of the COVID pandemic and governments around the world making announcements that would stop the spread of COVID. So one of those things was for people to stay in their homes and they could only leave if they were doing things like exercise or going shopping. And when they did that, they could only travel short distances or like two kilometers or five kilometers or whatever it was. So a lot of conspiracy groups at the time formed against these what were, you know, ostensibly very, very oppressive measures, like things that we haven't seen before. Again, all taken in good faith to sort of stop COVID spreading at a time when we'd had no vaccines or things like that. But these groups essentially explained this away by saying, oh, it's a hoax. It's all just a idea of 
unnamed elites and global governments to keep people down and oppress them and limit their personal freedoms and restrict them from, you know, moving and that kind of thing. And as restrictions were lifted, these COVID conspiracy groups kind of like they they, they didn't go anywhere. They stayed as they were. They, they uh, kept talking to each other. They formed, uh, you know, groups on the messaging app, Telegram or groups on Facebook or things like that. And they kept touting conspiracy theories. And another conspiracy theory that they came up with was that climate change is a hoax, which obviously is not a new conspiracy theory, but they reframed it in the context of the COVID pandemic. So they took this idea of uh, lockdowns and the limiting of personal freedoms and the fact that COVID was a hoax. And they said, well, if climate change is a hoax uh, and people are telling us to take certain measures to combat the effects of climate change, that means we're going to get climate lockdowns in future. And that's obviously completely untrue. But these groups decided that, you know, the COVID pandemic was a precursor to, again, these climate lockdowns where people would only be able to travel certain distances or they wouldn't be able to use their car to, to get places. They somehow latched onto the 15 minute city idea and applied it to the COVID lockdown idea where you could only travel again two kilometers or five kilometers or wherever it was I said well you're only going to be able to travel 15 minutes in the future as an effort to combat climate measures but like it's not going to be really to combat climate measures it's going to be your you know this is this is as far as you can travel because we're going to limit your personal freedoms and we're going to you know restrict your movements like we did in COVID so it's essentially you know, bastardization of the 15 minute city idea, you know, it inverts it from the, this idea that things will be useful, things will be nearby, you will only have to travel a maximum of 15 minutes to get to things that you need. The conspiracy theorists are saying that you will only be able to travel 15 minutes to get anything you need and anything outside of that would be like illegal or not allowed. And it goes back to the idea during COVID where you could only travel two kilometers or five kilometers, or whatever, and anything beyond that was against the law. So that's what they're saying. It's obviously going to be completely untrue. So, Stevie, have there been real life protests or is it all online to date? In Ireland, certainly it's all just online. And it should be mentioned that like this is, exists in, in very, very fringe groups. Like some people might you know, be sceptical about vaccines or um, uh, have, you know, kind of, I don't want to play it down, but kind of like other light type conspiracy theories. But this is very, very fringe. And But in the UK, which has actually been a catalyst for a lot of what we're seeing recently, it has come in the form of actual real life protests um, in the city of Oxford. Um, and a lot of the chatter around 15 minute cities, both here and in uh, the UK, uh, in relation to the, uh, sorry, the chatter and conspiracy groups about this uh, has stemmed from that. So this goes back to, again, COVID when things were a lot more local, people couldn't travel as far. In Oxford, uh, the city council introduced essentially traffic calming measures. So we've, we saw it here in Dublin as well, where there was you know, pedestrianisation of certain streets and, and, and that's something similar that happened there. And so the council is looking now to make these permanent and, um, you know, beyond the pandemic um, into the future. And a lot of people are protesting against that. Now, it should be said that not everyone who's protesting is a conspiracy theorist. There's a lot of people who, you know, are against it for their own reasons. They say that they will, you know, want to use a car to travel through Oxford or there's businesses complaining that like, uh, you know, it will it will reduce their footfall and, and the business that comes to them and that kind of thing. So a lot of the conspiracy theorists protests are sort of latching on to that and uh, trying to use it just to show that there's a wider movement there as well. Like I mentioned, it's still very on the fringe, but uh, yeah, there are there are certain in-person protests in, in Oxford that have happened, I think, in the last two weeks. Anyway, there was 
not last weekend, just gone, but the weekend before there was um, a protest at which five people were arrested. Again, it's not really clear whether the five people arrested were conspiracy theorists, or whether they were just ordinary protesters, but um, that will show you the scale of it. So you've real life protesters, a conspiracy theory, obviously local government issues when it comes to Oxford. And then a Tory MP recently speaking about the concept of the 15 minute city in the UK Commons. What did he say? Yeah, this is um, Nick Fletcher is the name of the Tory MP. And in early February, he kind of raised a lot of the same concerns that are raised by conspiracy theorists, he called it. And this is a quote, an international socialist concept, which it obviously isn't. It's just, a, like I said, an urban planning concept. Um, and he also claimed that you know, the 50 minute city will cost us our personal freedom, which again is absolutely not the case. So if we've reached the point where an MP thinks it's now a conspiracy, what have we seen in discussions around the 15 minute cities in mainstream media to date? Yeah, well, it certainly not appeared in in you know, the likes of say RT or BBC or anything like that. It it, it was mentioned on uh, GB News, which is a kind of uh, right wing um, UK a kind of news channel that's sort of equivalent to uh, what people would know in the US as kind of Fox News. It was kind of discussed there in, in, in um, the form of a conspiracy, but hasn't gone much beyond that. But people might know the Canadian clinical psychologist and climate skeptic Jordan Peterson. Uh, he's uh, the guy who um, has written this book um, for kind of aimed at young men at the 10 rules for life. He sent a tweet attacking 15 minute cities saying that, and, you know, the idea that neighbourhoods can be walkable is like really lovely, but that it's a tyrannical idea decided by bureaucrats and is going to essentially going to decide whether you're allowed to drive. And he said it's a perversion of the idea that came up during COVID that having a walkable city and living local is all about. So so when we look at the likes of Oxford, obviously uh, traffic calming issues seems to have been a trigger there. Some of the critics of the 15 minute city are saying that it introduces permits, does it? And what are they for if so? This goes back to what I was saying about those traffic calming measures. Um, so in another bid to cut congestion, um, Oxfordshire County Council is planning to trial like a traffic filter scheme on six roads in the city. So in order to bring in that traffic filter scheme, it's going to require cars to obtain permits to travel along those routes. Um, that's going to be tested with things like you know traffic cameras, which um, scan drivers' numbers plates and people without a permit will be fined. But this isn't specifically about the 15-minute city. This is just a measure to uh, you know kind of stop car traffic within Oxford itself. So the two have kind of been conflated, but are not really the same thing. And Camilla, switching to you on that, is that a common part of a 15-minute city plan? Is it more widespread? I mean, no. And <laughs> the idea of permits doesn't really fit in with with this concept at all. Um, if anything, it's the exact opposite of what this concept tries to do um, with giving people more opportunities, not taking taking opportunities away. What is key is that we can incentivize more people to choose to leave the car at home uh, and uh, walk more and use public transport more. But you know, if people are living in places where they feasibly can't, or they practically can't walk to the shop, then of course you know you have to you have to take your car. Um, but this concept is really about addressing some of those shortcomings of some of the neighborhoods that we've maybe built in the past. And uh, returning to you, Stevie, are we seeing much traction around this 15-minute conspiracy theory in Ireland? I know we've talked about Camilla's in London, we've discussed Oxford and other areas. Yeah, look, I mean I've I've mentioned a couple of times that it is on the you know the fringes uh of the conspiracy community, if you like. Um, but it has gained a little bit more traction within those groups, like I said, since the protests in Oxford and um, you know, it's 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 definitely not breaking into more mainstream groups yet, but uh people are becoming a lot more exercised about it when you look at uh groups that were originally set up to 
protests against COVID lockdowns on the messaging app Telegram. You can see it's being mentioned with increasing frequency. Um, you know, there's no protests or anything like that planned at the moment. But you know, it, it, it wouldn't surprise me at all if this is something that people uh, latch onto, particularly when you see. Uh, county council development plans like the Dublin City Council development plan has mentioned that they want to adopt some of the ideas of the 15-minute city. The latest, that latest development plan was adopted by councillors in uh, November. Uh, so there's going to be like new measures that are introduced because of this and Dublin City Council might want to you know, publicise that or talk about it a bit more and you know it, that could end up where conspiracy groups say no we're not having any of this and latch onto it as well. So like I said it's not traction in the sense that there are you know feet on the street about it but people are talking about it a lot more certainly in those groups yeah Do you think uh, we could ever see it become an election issue here then? As a conspiracy probably not I think it's probably a bit too out there for um, politicians to latch on to now I, I, I say that and it's famous last words you know we, we, we see of all the things that in the last couple of years that have happened and have become election issues or have gained political traction but no I think the only way it kind of becomes an election issue here is at you know local election level where councillors say that they're in favour of it and then other councillors might say well you know this is you know ludicrous we want to have you know you know more cars or uh, something like that but no I, I can't see it other than it being the, you know the planning concept that it is at a very local level um, I can't see it becoming an issue now. And Camilla, I might just come to you before we finish. Do you think that these sorts of conspiracy theories can have a long term effect on what people think about the 15 minute city? Maybe, but I wouldn't have thought so, actually. Um, Generally, I always welcome debates about urban planning and and design. Um, It's, of course, a shame when those conversations aren't rooted in in facts. Um, But that's the case of any conspiracy theory. But the way I see it, this particular conspiracy theory is about maintaining the status quo of our cities uh, and how our cities are designed and built. Um, And particularly, it's about maintaining the status quo for those who already have ultimate mobility freedom and the means to access all of the amenities that they want uh, when they want them. And so if anything, I actually think the current debate will help to shake up this status quo um, and hopefully get more people to question how their health and quality of life is connected to the shape and quality of of the environment. And as long as we can stick to the facts about what does and doesn't contribute to a healthy environment, um, I'd be very much looking forward to continuing that conversation. Well, I just jump in there as well. Like, I think it's very important um, what Camilla said about maintaining the status quo um, when you look at some of the actors who are uh, spreading this conspiracy, like the investigations have been done that they are linked to, um, you know, climate sceptic groups who themselves have links to like the likes of the fossil fuel industry and that as well. So um, it's it, it, it's a really important point um, and it's uh, something that we, you know, we, we should all be aware of when this is discussed. Yeah, it just shows you a need to unravel the agendas there when it comes to any conspiracy theories. So many thanks for all of those insights today, Stevie and Camilla. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by Daft Advantage Ads. Looking to sell your property for the best price? Head to www.advantage.daft.ie today for more info on the best way to sell your home in Ireland. Thanks again to Stevie McDermott and Camilla Siegel-Anderson for joining us today. You've been listening to The Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.